Welcome to Cooking Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast for foodie book lovers, where food is the story. And sponsored for the whole of May by City Books, Brighton and Ho's largest and liveliest independent bookshop. This week, I'm having a total fangirl moment with Joanne Harris. 20 years after I first fell in love with Vian, Anouk and Rue and Chocolat, and then couldn't wait to find them again in the lollipop shoes, peaches for Monsieur Le Cure, and now the Strawberry Thief, the latest in the Chocolat series. Expect folklore, synesthesia, magical realism, witches and fairy stories, belief and atheism, secrets and desire. We started by exploring whether we could call Vianne's adventures in the tiny southwest French town of lanskenay soutan a saga. Saga sounds a bit like a sort of... 70s Thornbirds kind of reissue. Oh, I'd love that. Oh, actually, it would be great. But this is so much more. This is, you know, 20 years on from Chocolat. And as I said to you on Twitter, Chocolat was the one book that absolutely everyone asked for when I put a shout out for who do you want on Cooking the Books? Everyone wanted Chocolat. Isn't that funny? People still remember after all this time. It's very touching. Just give us a little bit of an idea of where Vianne is. She's who we met at, in Chocolat, dragging her little Anouk in their lovely red capes through to this tiny little town in southwest France. And the capes were in the movie. I don't think the capes were in the book, but, you know, we have to look at things through the lens of the movie, I guess, because I think those two have become melded in the minds of some readers. I watched the, the movie again uh, two nights ago, actually. Um, I was just finishing The Strawberry Thief and I wanted to remind myself. So the capes were not in it. It was such an iconic no, moment. A lot of things that people think were in it were not in it, um, including bits of dialogue that are quoted as being part of the book that are not part of the book. But I think, you know, it, it's, it's normal that people should, should feel that a, a book has a slightly changed identity when the film has been as successful as that one was. How do you feel about the film? I thought it was lovely, but it wasn't my work. I didn't make it. I don't take any responsibility for it in a lot of ways because they took what they wanted from the book and they left what they wanted to leave. And they created something which which had an identity that was that was different. Um, so I can enjoy it as as a spectator, but I don't I don't feel that I had a lot of contribution to it. They 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 changed the story. They sweetened the ending. Um, one of the reasons that some people were so confused when I wrote another book to follow Chocolat was, you know, well, what happened with the happy ending? Why did she not get the happy ending? Well, you know what? I didn't give her a happy ending. I, I left the ending open-ended so that if I came to write another book, it would make sense. And uh, obviously Hollywood likes its love stories and it likes to it likes to tie everything up neatly. It, it, that's not something that I often do in fiction. You don't. You absolutely don't. Your women are very strong. They're magical. They are extraordinary storytellers. And in this, The Strawberry Thief, this is about Rosette, the younger daughter, Rue's daughter. She is a force of nature, isn't she? Well, she is. To Vian, she certainly is. To the rest of the world, she is a child who, who is imperfect, who has something wrong with her. And, and when I do talks about this, I often get people saying, well, you know, can you tell me what, what Rosette's condition is? Um, and I've very deliberately not done that. I don't want to talk about Rosette's condition in that sense, because I don't believe there is anything wrong with her. She is different. She is neurodivergent in all kinds of ways. But she is also very a very wonderful individual person of her own. And, and you know, what 
what she is is what she is. Let's go to the setup of the book. Um, we'll talk a lot more about Rosette. Uh, but can you read a little? Yeah, I'll read from... I've, I've had some difficulty finding food passages in this book because it's not as foodie as some of my others. Um, partly because, you know, I was using food as a metaphor for certain things in my previous books. And here the metaphor is quite different. It's something else. But obviously there is still food in there because Fian works with food. Um, now this is... Um, this is Renaud, who, who the book is also about, very much so. It's, he's had a long journey of his own, and and I'm quite fond of him. Um, and this is is Renaud looking at the the empty florists in the uh, in the square, which used to belong to Narcisse, who has just died, and and Renaud is thinking about the the speculation around it and and what's going to happen. Until then. I suppose there will be the kind of speculation that always surrounds an empty shop. I remember when Vian Rocher first moved into town all those years ago. That window, papered in orange and gold, just like a Chinese lantern. That scent of spices and incense smoke, like something from Arabian Nights. So many things have changed since then. Now Vian and I are almost friends. But how I resented that little shop with its brightly coloured awning and the scent of vanilla and allspice and the bitter rasp of raw cacao drifting out into the air. How I longed to step in to taste the wares in those glass cases. Now I tell myself I could. But though I do not fast for Lent, chocolate still seems one indulgence too far. Maybe tomorrow, I told myself. Maybe I would call later. The story is of Renaud, as you say, the priest, who, and it is about his secrets. It's about lots of secrets. Uh, it's about people living with secrets and not being able to talk about them. And there is the parallel with Rosette not having a voice of her own. She's fantastically articulate, but for most people, it seems like she has no voice. A lot of the narrative is about Renault reading Narcisse's confession. It's a confession to him of his own dark secret, which then reminds Renault of this dark secret that has plagued him since childhood. And there's this connection between God, confession and absolution. It's a very, it, it feels to me like you're an atheist. I'm absolutely an atheist, but I am interested in what people believe and why they believe it. And how it affects who they are. And and they do get their absolution through a much more sort of spiritual thing, I would say. I, your own background, I know that you were brought up in, in Barnsley in Yorkshire, uh, and you explored your two cultures. You were English and French, but neither side of the family spoke each other's languages, which I think, again, was really... That's right. My father speaks very good French, always did, but nobody else shared the other language so there was really my father and me in the middle and and we we were the one link linguistically between the two sides of the family my mother eventually learned english her, her english is still quite heavily accented uh, she was not a natural linguist although my father was but i wondered if that had anything to do with this issue around voice and speaking and not speaking and communication and holding things in and uh, being articulate only to a certain point and in very strange ways through magic, through chocolate, through tattoos later. 
Well, it's about expression, I think. Yeah, it could well be linked to those things. I don't really know. It's something that interests me, the way people express themselves. And they don't always express themselves through speech. Um, I, I have an uncle living on an island in France uh, who I remember as never speaking at all during my childhood. He, he barely said anything. He, he, was, uh, he was a man who spoke in literal monosyllables. Um, and his wife was a very articulate woman, actually, who talked and talked. And it was a very strange pairing. Um, and I wondered what was going on in his head. I never found out. Um, but all sorts of, of things people use to express themselves. They use art, of course. Um, they use their creativity. Um, my grandfather expressed himself through his garden. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, both my, my families, if you like, my French family and my English family, both came from very humble origins. My French family, um, you know, my, my, my great-grandmother was a literal peasant who married her employer, was widowed at 16 and was left during the war with a farm and two small children um, and had to cope. That made for a lot of stories. On my English side, my grandfather and my, my grandmother were both in service. Um, you know, so they, they were they were people with a lot of links to to the folk and the folklore and the land and the stories around the land. And I was lucky enough to have grandparents who had interesting stories to tell, who were storytellers, and who had access to this 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 thread of folklore and legend and culture which which they'd somehow acquired by osmosis because of of where they were born and and who they were born to and your mother used to sing the song that Vianne sings to Anouk and to Rosette Villa le bon vent oh she did indeed it's an old folk song it has many many variants i'm told that it's canadian i went to canada last year and and tried to research its origins i don't believe now that it is canadian i think it came from france and ended up in canada but it's it's older than the the french discovery of canada if you like um but yes a lot of the things that my mother sang to me or the stories that she told me or the stories that my grandparents told me have ended up in one way or another in my books, I think that's that's normal because stories feed into other stories, and to me, story is 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 not just one person's story. It is threads of stories that come together and and inform each other. And, and the Strawberry Thief is very much about that. It's about how one story touches another story and creates these connections that we're not necessarily aware of when we start. Vianne is one of those magical storytellers she we know that she's she casts magic by by seeing into what's missing in people through her chocolate and she meets her match with Morgan the tattooist you make a, a connection between blood and chocolate and both of those come from those ancient religious traditions and both get under the skin and I wonder how whether it was a deliberate uh, idea of yours to t to move it from chocolate onto something else to sort of leave the chocolat behind. Well, I'm not leaving chocolate behind exactly, but I'm exploring other things. I mean, here at the moment, 20 years after chocolat, Vianne has been through a number of changes. She has met a number of people who have changed her and she has ended up in the village, the original village, Lanskenay-Soutan in uh, chocolat, the one she thought she would never fit into. And now she is not an outsider anymore. She is an insider. 
Uh, she's even made friends with Renaud, the priest who was such a pain in the ass in Chocolat, who himself has had a journey. Um, and in this book, she finds herself very much in the role of Renaud in Chocolat. She is the one who is afraid of the newcomer, who feels threatened. And what I wanted to do with Morgane was to choose something that was, to me, equivalent to chocolate making, to create a character who in some way was very similar to Jan Rocher 20 years ago. Um, and I looked at, at various things which, which I felt were, um, were possible to compare with chocolate. And, and the art of tattooing is as old, if not older, as controversial historically. Um, and I thought, you know, that, that might be it. And, and th because this is a book about marking in one way or another, about being marked by the past, by other people, um, I thought that it would be an interesting thing to do. Um, and so I, I, I created this, this woman, Morgan, who is, who is very similar to Vian in some ways, but who is also, at least to Vian, a kind of shadowy, threatening figure. Because Vian, who is great at seeing what's missing in other people, is not so great at seeing what's missing in herself. And she still has a journey to undergo a lesson to learn, a period of growth. And because this book is very much about acknowledging the marks of the past so that we can continue with the future, and it's very much about letting go, um, I thought that, yes, Morgane is the person to insert into this story. And so she is at the heart of, of all of it. And while she is conducting her magic in her shop, Vian continues to conduct hers in the way she always has. And it is up to the reader to find out whose magic is the strongest. And both of them are finding that what emerges from the chocolate making and the tattoos themselves is this essential bit that's missing, the secret that is in those souls. Let's just read from that. I like to make these pralines by hand. I use a ceramic container over a shallow copper pan. An unwieldy, old-fashioned method, perhaps, but the beans demand special treatment. They have travelled far and deserve the whole of my attention. Today I'm using couverture made from the criollo bean. Its taste is subtle, deceptive, more complex than the stronger flavours of the Forestero, less unpredictable than the hybrid Trinitario. Most of my customers will not know that I'm using this rarest of cacao beans, but I prefer it, even though it may be more expensive. The tree is susceptible to disease, the yield is disappointingly low, but the species dates back to the time of the Aztecs, the Olmecs, the Maya. The hybrid Trinitario has all but wiped it out, and yet there are still some suppliers who deal in the ancient currency. Nowadays I can usually tell where a bean was grown, as well as its species. These come from South America, from a small organic farm. But for all my skill I have never seen a flower from the Theobromo cacao tree, which only blooms for a single day, like something in a fairy tale. I have seen photographs, of course. In them the cacao blossom looks something like a passion flower, five-petaled and waxy, but small, like a tomato plant, and without that green and urgent scent. Cacao blossoms are scentless, keeping their spirit inside a pod roughly the shape of a human heart. Today I can feel that heart beating, 
a quickening inside the copper pan that will soon release a secret. And it does. Tell us about your synesthesia. I'm fascinated by synesthesia. The ability to sing a rainbow, listen with your eyes. <laughs> Have you always well, been synesthetic? Well, yeah. It, it, it took me a long time to understand that this was actually not normal or typical and that other people couldn't experience this. And, and it, it took me until I was in my 30s to realise that my neurological if you like strangeness was was had a name um when when i was a child i just assumed that everybody could smell colors and that if i referred to shall we say something that was bright red as the chocolate one everybody would understand what i meant nobody did and and it was part of one of the things that that made me quite odd but but yes basically i have a form of synesthesia which means that i experience colors a scent as well as a visual, um, particularly in bright light. And and you'll see that I'm sitting in my shed and it is full of very bright colours. And this is one of the things that I find pleasing about it. I surround myself with colours that trigger scents because why wouldn't you? Um, I think possibly because I do experience the world in this way, mostly through colour and scent. This is one of the reasons that I write so much about colour and scent. It never occurred to me that I did that, but I think I do. Do you get lots of people responding to that who are not synesthetic? Um, no. I get a lot of people who are, who say, oh, yes, that's me, but except, except I hear things instead of see things or, or, or smell things or I taste names or days of the week are different colours. Nobody has the same synesthesia as anybody else. This is the thing. And therefore, everybody experiences the world in a slightly singular way. I think even people who consider themselves to be neurotypical have got an element of synesthesia, which is why some people who are neurotypical still understand what I'm talking about. Because if if the language of perfumery, everybody knows what a green scent is. Everybody understands that that is a certain kind of herbaceous fougere citrusy scent. And there's there's no debate about this. And, And the people who have researched synesthesia understand that there is a kind of baseline synesthetic response to stimuli that pretty much everybody has and so although I think my response is is heightened in some ways I don't believe that that it is entirely inexplicable to people it may sound a bit like a sort of possession but in fact when people understand themselves and the way they experience the world they find more and more Um, synesthetic markers if you like in in their own personal experience and and this is this is fair enough because how can we know how somebody else perceives the world well I suppose that's why I asked that question for me it 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 ignites something that I don't normally associate with I don't see the world in I don't smell the world in in a particular color I love maybe it's one of the reasons I love food maybe I'm slightly synesthetic but I think that what what it does for me, reading your book, you know, 20 years after Chocolat, reading The Strawberry Thief, I'm, oh, that's it. There's that language again. It's it's something, it r- reminds me of, of a language that I don't normally speak. And, I, and it has been so phenomenally popular that I wonder if that is a, a common response from non-synesthetic people who are, there's a, a layer of meaning that we don't normally use in our lives. Well, I think what I have had from people is this repeated expression of, of, of pleasure at being able to share things in a multi-layered, multi-sensual way. 
I think a lot of people have said to me, yes, I could taste the chocolate. I could smell this. Um, you made the thing sensory in a way that, that, you know, perhaps some other books don't. And that to me is, I mean, it's wonderful. It's what I was going for because I do like writing to be fully immersive. And that means using all the senses. Whereas I, what I realised when I was writing Chocolat, and, and I did write it in a very natural way to me, but um, I realised that I was writing a lot about scents and tastes. Whereas most of the books that I read didn't mention scents and tastes at all. They mentioned a great deal about sound and visual description, but the rest of it wasn't there. And I thought, well, okay, why wouldn't you put those other things in there? Why would you not try to create an extra layer of sensory experience to try to make that, you know, a deeper experience for the reader. And so when people say, yes, I felt as if I was there, I feel, yes, this is this is great. This is kind of what I was going for. Well, it's one of the reasons I think you recognise the characters immediately, even though each chapter is told, narrated by a different character, but you instantly know who that person is. Rosette doesn't have a voice yet. She speaks in this shadow voice. She signs to everybody, but everyone can feel who she is. And she is the strawberry thief. And we haven't really talked about that. And I feel that the way that you describe strawberries and you write describe strawberries in many ways throughout the book, you describe them as, you know, self-seeding and they grow in poor soil. They are, they live anywhere. They do their own thing. They're runners. They're hungry for change. They reclaim their wildness. That's who Rosette is. She's she's a somebody who she steals strawberries from a little bit of strawberry wood, but that's so not what that why she is the strawberry thief. No, that's right. She, she the, the strawberry thief is a much more complex image than than just that one thing. It, it's it's a repeating image, and and one of the things that I wanted to do with this book because it's a book about marking and it's it's a book about patterns. Um, I chose the strawberry thief as, as a pattern which repeats in different ways throughout the book. And of course, it's the William Morris pattern that anybody who is familiar with Morris's work will know um, that is physically there in Morgan's shop. And it's also there in places on Morgan herself. It's one of the patterns that she's put on her own skin. But it's also a pattern that recurs throughout the story, the idea of strawberries and how they run and how they that they leave the parent plant and, and go wild. And this is exactly what Rosette is doing. Um, and it's exactly what Vian is afraid of, because Vian, who has already lost one daughter to Paris, um, and, and you know she may not come back to Lanskine, is clinging on to, to Rosette with both hands um, and fears that at some point she will also move on and do her own thing. And, and this is, I think, every mother's fear, but Vian particularly who has only ever had her children. Um, there isn't really anybody else. There is who, but he, you know, he's not always around. Um, and even when he is, they don't have that kind of relationship. She's She's got friends, but she's had friends everywhere she's been and she hasn't kept them all. The idea that, that her daughters might go somewhere else, do other things, is, is to her much more of a keener loss than... than it might be to somebody who had always fitted in and always lived in the same place. The idea of the maternal is, as you say, a recurrent theme. And you play with this in lots of different ways. You use, we'll go on to your third food moment in, in a moment, with the idea of the witch, the archetypal bad mother. She's the aunt, but she's the bad mother. But Morgan is also the witch, 
But she is a magical creature. Vianne, as we know, was the witch who seduced the town with her chocolate, but is now much more grounded because of her fear of losing her children. But Morgan's, I, the, the fact that she hasn't got feet, I found absolutely <laughs> fascinating in terms of grounding the witch. Tell us a little bit about that before we go into your third food moment. I, I don't really know where Morgan came from. Um, she is, as you say, a kind of archetypical character, and she she is she is different to everybody who sees her. And and there is an undercurrent throughout this book about disability and what it means to different people. To certain people, Rosette is disabled because she doesn't speak and because she is not neurotypical and because she doesn't conform to what they think a child should be. Um, she makes friends with a little boy who also has um, a problem in that he has a condition which which means that... I, mean, I was actually thinking of a condition that does actually have a name, but I don't name these conditions because I don't want to, to pin them onto people. But he is, he is a little boy who can't stop eating, which again sounds almost like a fairy tale condition, but it's, it's a very real thing. Um, and Morgan has no feet, which many people would see as a disability, but which actually doesn't affect anything that Morgan does. Uh, it's just something that they see about her and that they notice and that they judge. Um, in fact, I see Morgan as somebody who could take wing at almost any moment. So the feet are just there to, you know, they're just there as a prop. Yeah. So that she can she can move around people, but she could she could just fly away. Yeah, and it's a very good device for that moment later in the book where that that possibility of Rosette flying away happens. Let's talk about Tante Anna. She is a really. I mean, I know that you grew up with the stories, the 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 Grimm's fairy tales. She is absolutely out of the Grimm's fairy tales, isn't she, Tante Anna? Oh, she's horrible. Um, Tantana actually um, I wrote a book called Five Quarters of the Orange which was set in a certain place at a certain time during the war Um, and some of those characters actually pop up in The Strawberry Thief very tangentially but there is a question which which never got an answer in Five Quarters of the Orange um, which gets an answer in here because we see a glimpse of those characters who are actually tangentially related to the characters I'm writing about in The Strawberry Thief. And my, my stories do this a lot. They kind of touch each other briefly so that you can see how they fit. Um, the Lollipop Shoes is very much that too. And, and again, those characters pop up very briefly in The Lollipop Shoes um, just to prove that, that stories can, can just skirt around each other and create little antechambers of story that are connected in, in some way. So yes, Tantana is, is Narcissa's aunt, and Narcisse is the, the old florist. He is a returning character who, who has been there in the background of all these books, um, but who we don't really know much about, except that he hates the priest, Renaud. Uh, he really hates the church. He quite likes Vianne. He quite likes Roux, who he's given work to. Um, he very much likes Rosette for reasons we don't quite understand and which are explained fully in his confession. This confession that he perversely decides to give to Renaud, who he hates, knowing that Renaud will have to read it because it's his duty um, and knowing that it will make him very, very uncomfortable and will give him, Narcisse, the chance to to say all kinds of rather barbed things about the church that Renaud would not otherwise have listened to. Um, so, yes, he's he's been brought up during the war by his, his aunt, Tante Anna, and his father, who is 
a man who, like Rosette, doesn't speak much um, and who is passive, who is a widower who loved his, his Jewish wife very much, but she's died and has left his children to be brought up almost entirely by his Tante Anna, who is actually his, um, his great-aunt. And Tante Anna is, is one of those irredeemably nasty women who I suspect has a story behind her, but I haven't told that story. She is extremely stern with her children. She brought up Narcissa's father, um, possibly explaining why he's so shy and so passive and stammers so much. And and she then brings up Narcissa and his sister, Naomi um, or Mimi, who again is in the, 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 the view of the world disabled. Um, she, again, like Rosette, has problems speaking. She has um, the mental age of a much younger child. She is never going to properly grow up. And Nassis is very, very fond of her. Um, Tantana isn't. She thinks of her as a useless eater and um, and and is, is not kind to her at all. And, and this is one of the formative relationships in Nassis's life. And it's one of the reasons that later he sees his sister in Rosette and and bonds with her so closely. Do you want to read that that moment where Tantana humiliates Narcisse? Yes, well, this is a moment where Narcisse's father has gone off on business and has left the children together with, with Tantana. Tantana, who, who believes that both the children have been allowed to run wild and that they need bringing back uh, to some form of discipline, um, has locked Mimi up in her room and is going to punish Narcisse by, by making him basically eat on the floor. Where do you think you're going, she said, as I started to sit in my usual place. Dogs don't eat at table. They eat from a dish on the floor. And she poured my milk into a chipped blue and white bowl that I did not recognise and put it on the kitchen floor with a piece of bread on the side and said, There, eat your breakfast. I looked at the blue and white bowl on the floor. For a moment I considered kicking it over. Then I remembered Mimi, still locked in the bedroom, and realised how easily Tantana could punish me. What about Mimi, I said. Isn't she getting breakfast? I'll check on Naomi when you're done, said Tantana, pouring café au lait into her little porcelain cup. For the moment I think she's best left alone to consider her behaviour. I knelt on the floor and drank my milk. I knew Tantana was watching. She pretended not to notice me, as she grilled a piece of bread and spread it with strawberry jam. I would have liked some jam as well, but dared not ask for any. In her present mood, Tantana was likely to take it out on Mimi. Tantana gets her comeuppance, as in oh, all great does. fairy tales. <clears throat> you use a lot of mythology. The tarot comes in and out. There's the good witch, the bad witch, the wind, the sort of the Mary Poppins idea of the wind changing. There's a lot of folklore because I've always thought that, that folklore was basically the history of the people who, who had no voice. It's, um, you know, we know what happened in history only because we are told what happened in history by the people who had access to the records and the books and the writing, those people who were able to, to reshape history into any form they, they, they wanted. And so the kings and the priests and the people in power, they got to write the history books. But the people 
they got to write the stories. They got to tell what really mattered to them. And so to me, folklore is, is the voice of the people saying what really mattered to them at any given time. And that is why, to me, folklore is still so important to us, because we sense that however much or little we know about folklore, it has kind of seeped into the way we see the world. Yeah, it's interesting when Anouk comes back, because she feels less magical than the characters in Lonskinet. She's been to Paris, she's fallen in love, she's actually got married, which is lovely, and she's going to finally flee the nest. Vianne's worst fears have come true. And your final food moment is when Anouk comes back, and it's a wonderful moment. I mean, I, my daughters are 25 and 21 and, and this really resonated with me. I was so terrified of them leaving home. And of course, it's it's fine. Um, of course it is. But how but, old is yours? Yes. My daughter is is uh, is 26. And at the time I was writing this was about to get married and move to Russia. And and things haven't quite worked out that way. But, uh, you know, she's married. She's living in London. And so I, I felt that Vian and I knew knew what we were talking about. We were on very much the same wavelength and I could I could tap into whatever feelings I had about my daughter and and project some of them into Vian. Um Vian who who feels her absence keenly, particularly as, as really her daughters are all she's ever had that she could she could properly connect to. Yeah. And there's a wonderful moment at the beginning of that chapter where Vianne is cooking for her and it's not chocolate. It's the only time in the whole book, I think, where Vianne is seen to be cooking anything, making anything other than chocolate. And do you want to read that? Anouk went up to her room to unpack, leaving me to make dinner. Something quick and simple, I thought. A salad of ripe tomatoes, served with baked goat's cheese, fresh bread and a dish of fat brown olives. I managed to hide my anxiety until she had left the room but my hands were shaking as I cut up the tomatoes. A little oil, some sea salt, shallots, a handful of fresh basil. Food is the thing that unites us all, that brings us back together. Food is the thing we can provide when there is nothing else we can do. That's why we serve it at funerals, to remind us that life always goes on. It's a wonderful passage because it is as delicious as anything that you describe in the book but it's very very straightforward we probably all eaten that and we can imagine that in a way that possibly can't imagine the most delicious chocolate that she makes and she feels that Anouk it, it, it feels it reads as though Anouk is somebody else that she's very normal she, she wears jeans of course she's a very ordinary person well, so is Vianne, of course. She wears jeans too, and she is also on some level a very ordinary person. We see that a little bit more in this. Not, not. I mean, she's still using chocolate as the way to change people's lives, but we see her vulnerability. And then there's that wonderful scene where Anouk and Vianne are making chocolate together, and it's the same as it ever was. And that's a very beautiful presentation of mother-daughter relationship. What was she so worried about? Well, I think I think her anxiety is that her daughters will be like her, will never be able to settle down, will never be able to make connections with other people in a way that grounds them 
and they will always be moving on the way she has, that to not be moving on, they will have to make the kind of sacrifice that she has made, which is essentially to let go of her daughters. And and she's also worried about being alone. She has never been alone in her life. She has always had either her mother or her daughters with her, and they have been her life. The idea that when they are gone, what will she do? What will she be good for? Is very much in the, in the forefront of her mind. Um, and it's something that she hasn't explored because she's so good at helping other people see what's important to them and, and to change their lives for the better. But she has never done it for herself. This is in some ways very much a coming of age story for Fian. It is, it is where Fian's adventures can actually start because she is no longer at the end of the book constantly worrying about her loss potentially and her daughters and what they will be like. She actually understands that they have volition and agency and volition is a wonderful word because it literally means flying away, um, that they can do that, but that they can also be in her life and that she, she isn't going to lose them forever because that's not possible. Can there be another book? Oh, yes, of course there can. I don't know whether there will be, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't something about at least one of them. Um, I think Rosette has lots more stories to tell. So has Anouk. So has Vianne. I even think Renaud, who has by the end of this book reached a kind of moment where he is at least reasonably easy with himself and his past, I think, you know, he may well have a story in him as well. So I don't know. Um, these stories have taken me a long time to write because I've been writing them parallel to events that have happened in my life. And although they're not entirely autobiographical, I have needed the the perspective from writing a book as the mother of a small child to the mother of an adolescent, to the mother of a child about to leave home, to a mother of a child, and so on. I've had to have that life experience, otherwise those books would not have been written the way they were, and they wouldn't have they wouldn't have felt to me emotionally true or satisfying. And so, you know, give me another five years or so and maybe there'll be something else and, and maybe I'll know something then that I don't and I'll be able to use it. I hope so. Thank you very much, Joanne Harris. It's been total pleasure. Thanks for listening. Thank if you. If you like what you hear, do please rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And I'll see you next week.